verses 14, 15, and 16. From the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Paul said, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. In verse 16, a very famous verse, you probably know it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning in this title, Who's Missing at Your Table? Who's Missing at Your Table? So the great apostle Paul, the man who wrote about one-third of the New Testament, and is listed as one, or at least among one of the all three of the all-time greatest men who has ever lived, even by secular historians, was by far the greatest and most effective and influential apostle, and who was chosen by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles whose wonders and signs and miracles followed his preaching and teaching everywhere that he went, considered himself as being a debtor to the grace of God. And if that passage is not underlined in your Bible today, verse 14 of Romans 1, you should consider doing that. I am a debtor. Because I wonder how many how often do we consider ourselves a debtor to the grace of God? The grace of God that bought him, that washed him, that filled him with the Holy Ghost and made him a new man. Paul said, I am a debtor. In another place, he called himself uh, the chiefest, not of the apostles, although he was, but the chiefest of sinners because he knew that he was a debtor to the grace of God. It was an arduous task that God assigned the Apostle Paul to do, not only in its inerrant difficulty in bringing the gospel to strange lands, and especially at a time when uh, traveling was not very easy, but in going to a people that his own race considered outcasts and vagabonds, a people without any law and that was to be hated and despised by his own people. Remember that Paul was a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. But if you look into the Old Testament from Isaiah 42 and verse 6, Isaiah said, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people, for a light to or of a light of the Gentiles. So you see, from the very foundation of the Old Testament, that was God's purpose for the Jewish people. From the very beginning, it was not about them. And as a matter of fact, uh, even whenever you study the Exodus from Egypt, as, as I just read about uh, this very week, even when you study the Exodus from Egypt, it was never about God just delivering the Jews. There was always a much larger picture that God was looking at. From Exodus 9 and verse 16, he said, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. He's talking to Pharaoh now. For to show in thee my power and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. So God did not just raise up Moses and spend 40 years first raising him up and then 
the next 40 years getting Moses to see that he was nothing without God. So you might say it took God 80 years to raise up Moses, but it also took him 80 years to raise up Pharaoh. He wasn't just raising up Pharaoh so that God's power would be declared throughout the entire earth. That, that was the purpose, not just to declare it among the Jewish nation, not just so that they could have their tabernacle and they could have their law and they could have their special privileges and walk around with the sovereign power of God and say, look at us, look at us, aren't we special? But God brought them out of Egypt and raised them up so that God's name would be declared throughout the entire world. The message, that message was scattered and hidden all throughout the Psalms and prophets and all throughout the Old Testament. You find in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14 where he said, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover uh, the sea. He said, the whole earth, not just a small segment of the Middle East, not just one tiny little territory, but the whole earth. The Spirit of the Lord is often likened unto waters or seas. So Habakkuk prophesied that God's Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh, all the waters, all the rivers, all the lakes, all the little uh, bodies of water that there are all throughout the world. Habakkuk prophesied that there would come a day when God's Spirit would not just be available to Jews who kept the laws of God, but to the Gentile nations as well. And to this agree the words of the prophet Joel, as you well know this verse, and it shall come to pass afterwards, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. The Jews were a light and a witness to the whole earth. But instead of becoming a light and a witness, that first generation who saw and witnessed the coming of the Son of God, the Messiah, but instead they became a stumbling block to many who believed. You see, those who knew the law the most and could have been a tremendous blessing instead became a stumbling block and a cause of martyrdom for those first century Christians who came to know the Lord. Remember, if you will, that martyrdom did not just begin in Rome. It started with the Jews in Jerusalem as well. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to who first? The Jew. And also to the Greek. Paul did not say to the Jew first and then the Greek, but he said to the Jew first and then, or, and also to the Greeks or to the Gentiles, to the heathens, to the vagabonds. What he was saying was that the gospel to the Gentiles was not some plan B. It was plan A all along. God's purpose was that they, was that that generation, that first generation of, of Christians would, would become uh, a light and a witness throughout the whole earth. But instead, those first generation Jews became something that they never should have been when they began to nitpick and, 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 and to persecute those first century Christians. And so people, Christians that came to know the Lord in the first century also had to come through that generation 
generation of Jews. Let me just pause here for a moment and say this. I hope that nobody ever has to step around me to get to Jesus. I hope that nobody ever has to look past my bad attitude in order so that they could come to Jesus Christ. I hope that nobody ever has to look past a holier-than-thou attitude or spirit that might stem from me that they might have to look past in order to come to know the Lord and the power of His Spirit. I hope that nobody ever has the stepper on my attitude towards them or my social media posts before they come to know Jesus Christ. I hope that nobody ever finds a condemning or an angry spirit coming from me before they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that there's no person or no group or political party that I can't love like Jesus loved. Because let me remind you of the obvious. It's easy to love people we get along with and agree with. Amen. We saw the Dillbacks that are here today. By the way, the Dillbacks are here. They came just to hear me preach. No, I'm teasing. If, if you don't love the Dillbacks, something is wrong with you. Because they are awesome people. Amazing people. It's, it's people like that that are easy to love. It's people like that that you see. You want to hug their necks. You want to shake their hand. You want to take them out for coffee or dinner because they're likable. They're, you know, they're, they're easy to get along with. They're not disagreeable. But there are other groups of people that by nature you have been taught differently from them. And it's those people that God has called us to love. Look at the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it has been said, you will love your neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now that was Old Testament law. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Everybody say, love your enemies. Say, love my enemies. And bless them. And bless them that curse you. Say it again, love my enemies and bless them that curse me. That's what Jesus said. I didn't say it. If you don't like it, take it up with him. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your father which is in heaven. You understand what he just said. If you don't do that, you're not a real child of God. If you don't love them that love you and bless them that hate you, and, and if you don't do those words, Jesus, I don't care how much you speak in tongues, I don't care what name you're baptized in, I don't know you. He said that you may be called the children of your Father, which is known for four, watch this, he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We are not the only people that God blesses. You know, there's people that will never give a dime to the kingdom of God, but they are blessed by nature of the fact that they get up in the morning and the sun rises and they've got health. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? 
Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Love your enemies. Love those who hate you. Love those who persecute you. Because Refuge Church is not a club for the righteous. We are a hospital for the hurting and for the hopeless. This church is not just for apostolics. It's for all races. It's for all languages. It's for all creeds. It's for whosoever will. Jesus said, let him come. The woman at the well from the story in John chapter 4. The Bible says in those first few verses, Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Now, there's, there's some that, that say, well, that the Samaria was, was, the, was there between Judea and Galilee. There was only one road, and he was going to Galilee. I don't, maybe that's true. I don't know. Ask Pastor Chad. I've heard he's been to Israel before. He probably knows. But... I just think that there was more to Jesus needing to go through Samaria than that was the only way to get there. I think that Jesus knew there was a need, a woman that he was desperately attracted to in, in order so that he would show the love of God to her. And Jesus sat down at the well, and it's of note that the Bible says it was about the sixth hour of the day. Now, we know that was about 12 o'clock noon. What happens at 12 o'clock noon? It's time to eat. We'll come back to that in just a moment. That's an important detail. But it was a time when Jews were eating lunch, which is why the disciples were all buying away food, leaving Jesus alone. And I've often wondered, this woman, you know, she was a lewd and infamous woman, probably promiscuous as you know, she had been with five men that were called her husbands. We don't know what happened to them. We don't know her story, but Jesus later identified it as the man you with now, who are you with now, is not your husband. And I've often wondered if there's something to the fact that she came to the well at a time when nobody else would have probably been there. When everybody else would have been in their houses and surrounding with their families eating, this woman came by herself, probably because she was used, or rather she was tired of, of the stairs. She was tired of, of people pointing fingers at her and you know, maybe crossing the other side of the street because she's not like us. She's lived a life of sin and debauchery. She's made poor choices. But what troubles me the most in this story is this response from the 12. When they got back from buying their food and upon seeing Jesus speaking with this lewd and licentious woman, they said this in verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, what seest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? The inference is that that's what they were thinking and feeling. But they were just too scared to rebuke their master. It seems as if Jesus perhaps had to wait for the twelve to get out of the way before he could accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in Samaria. 
An entire town heard the gospel from a lewd and licentious woman whose life had been radically changed by Jesus Christ, but only after Jesus' own disciples got out of the way. I'll say it again. I hope that God never has to move me out of the way before he can reach somebody. Can you love people who are not your flavor? Can you love people who don't vote like you? Or who don't act like you? Or who don't worship the same God like you? Can you genuinely love them? Because Jesus gave his life for those people. Jesus ate and he drank with publicans and sinners. There's another passage I hope you have underlined in your Bible. He ate and he drank with publicans and sinners, the worst sinners of his day, and yet Jesus was their friend. He associated with them. He went out of his way to meet them and to walk among them. He sought after them. They came to him because they were attracted to his love. Perhaps they didn't even know or understand what they were feeling, but they sensed somehow that he was different. He never became like them. He never participated in their sins. But he loved them, and he was their friend. Where others avoided them, where the Pharisees and Sadducees in their long robes and, you know, in keeping the perfect laws of God, or so they thought, they avoided those types of people. Yet Jesus pursued them with passion where others mocked them, Jesus loved them. Where others hated them, Jesus befriended them and listened to their stories and their lives and their hurts and their pains and their wounds. Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. That's why perhaps the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees hated him. Perhaps they said he was guilty by association. So they canceled Jesus. They canceled Jesus and the work he was doing because it was outside of their little narrow-minded box of what they thought God should do. But the church does not have a cancel culture. The church does not have and never will have a cancel culture. Jesus ate with the worst sinners of his day. They were prostitutes, liars, homosexuals, alcoholics, racists, thieves, stealing tax collectors, and adulterers, but Jesus friended them. The cancer culture today wants to cancel anybody they don't agree with. It's a narrow-minded way of thinking, so we cancel Target and other companies that don't support our values. And for whatever it's worth, I don't care if you, tar if you boycott Target or not. I don't care if you boycott every company. I mean, that's, that's a personal decision, and the pulpit should not dictate that. I'm just making a point here today. We boycott often entire groups of people that we don't like or that don't fit into our values. We judge and throw insults at them and ridicule those whose values don't fit what we believe and perceive to be the Word of God. And now I'm told they're, they're they're talking about canceling Coles and, and Bed Bath and Beyond. I've heard this recently that they're canceling, they're wanting to cancel Chick-fil-A now too because of something the CEO allegedly said a year or so ago. I don't know if that's true or not, but I would say this. 
please cancel Chick-fil-A because I won't have to wait so long for my chicken nuggets that way. <laughs> that means the line in the drive-thru won't be wrapped around the building 97 times. I tell my wife Wednesday night, she's like, oh, the line is so long. Sometimes we'll go there after church. I'm like, it's 10 minutes. No matter, no matter how, how long the line is wrapped around, it's 10 minutes. I'm not preaching for or against Chick-fil-A. I'm just saying, I really like Chick-fil-A. If we ever have to cancel Chick-fil-A, I'm just going to have to wait till y'all are looking and go there anyway. But here's the thing. Why are we surprised when the world acts like the world? How can they be blind, we say? How can they be so blind? How can they be so ignorant, we confess? But it begs the question, do we expect dead people to act alive? And do we expect the blind people to see like we do? The world is not connected to the life of God. They are spiritually blind and deaf. They are not unchurched. They are lost without Christ. And they are going to a devil's hell. And we must reach them. Somehow with the gospel. And the problem with, with our modern cancer culture today is it doesn't understand grace and forgiveness. And for the record, it's not just on one side. It's both sides. Left cancels right, right cancels left. Moderates, they don't know who to cancel because they're a little bit of both. They probably cancel everybody. <laughs> I don't blame them. You got right versus left, left versus right. Everybody, the, the, the left thinks Jesus was a Democrat. The right thinks Jesus is a Republican. It's not a question, is, is Jesus on our side? Is, is, it's, are we on his? God doesn't need America. America needs God. Right now. People want to boycott everything they don't like or agree with, but it's a narrow-minded and small way of looking at the world. Let me ask you this. Can you be friends with a communist who hates America and burns the American flag? Can you be friends with somebody that you would deem to be a far-left liberal? Or how about a far-right-wing conservative? How about an atheist or an agnostic or as they used to call them, skinheads? How about a member of the KKK whose parents and grandparents were racist and slave owners or worse? Because if we cannot be friends with them, we cannot ever have any hope of winning them. You may say, well, they should just repent and come to Christ and then we can be friends. When they're exactly like me, they can be my friend. But that's not how it works. Jesus said, I have set the church like a city set on a hill. We are salt and we are light and we have been commissioned with this gospel to reach the whole world. Not just one side of the aisle. Have we forgotten where we were in what spiritual shape we were in before Jesus found us. Where were any of us? Or better yet, what might have you become had Jesus not found you when he did? Perhaps we would be like that group that you want to ban or you don't want to be like. You might be just like them had it not been for the grace of God that bought you. 
So the modern cancer, cancel culture wants to cancel anybody that doesn't look like them, think like them, act like them. But we must never allow that attitude to filter into the church because we are not building a nation. We are building a kingdom. The kingdom of God, a spiritual nation, because that is where the harvest is at. See, the moment that I cancel, or rather, let me put it to you this way. When I start praying for God to use me, when you start praying for God to use you, don't be surprised if you're surrounded by people that are atheists and are agnostics and that are devil worshipers and are part of the homosexual community and hate America and are racist. Some of them are members of the KKK. Don't be surprised if God puts you right smack in the middle of those types of people. Because that's where the harvest is at. Don't be surprised if you prayed for God to use you and suddenly you find yourself surrounded by the very same people that you don't like. You can't run from the harvest and be a worker in the harvest field at the same time. The harvest is not here in the four walls of this church. This is not where the harvest is at. I hope you come, you should come to be equipped on Sundays and on Wednesday nights, but, 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 but this is not where the harvest is at. The harvest is out there. It's in your schools, amen. It's in the gay prides and the gay assemblies that are out there. It's in the LGBTQIA communities. It's among the KKK members. It's on the left side of the aisle. It's on the right side of the aisle. That's where the harvest is at, and that's where to whom we must go the harvest is in bars all over this all over this city and all over this country the harvest is in alcoholic anonymous groups all over this country the harvest is in the homeless people and many of them who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and can't get find a way to get on their feet the harvest is in that young lady who just went to an abortion clinic and had her baby murdered in her womb because she doesn't know any other way out she doesn't know what to do and she doesn't have any friends that are apostolic so the only friends that she has before she's going down tonight and she's going to take some pills and kill herself. She might reach out to a friend and they don't have any answers because nobody that's apostolic is surrounding her because we all many times have been like the priest that, that crossed over on the other side of the street instead of looking at the person that is hurting and broken and that we can help that God has placed right in our way. So the harvest is not here. It's out there. You see, Jesus gave us the gospel of truth and grace. Many times it has been preached with truth alone. And it has cut and it has wounded people. And it has caused many people to be turned off from the faith. But God is calling us to remember that it is a gospel, not just of truth, but of grace and truth. Truth alone will cut, but grace reaches. When truth is mingled with grace, it becomes a message of reconciliation. 
When truth is mixed with love and compassion and a heart that reaches for people, people know that you don't that they don't that you don't have to agree with them. You don't have to be participating in their sins. You don't have to go to the gay bars. That's not what I'm talking about. You don't have to go to their you know to their to, you know to, you know, to their you know whatever parties and doing whatever with them. I'm just saying, be their friend. Invite them over for coffee. Take them over to your house. Be their friend. Make sure that you're in on their circle. But people are not one or converted by, to Jesus by truth alone, but by grace and truth. There was a parable Jesus told in Matthew chapter 22. There was a king that made a marriage feast for his son. You probably know this story many well. Inv- invitations went out to the best of society. After all, it was the prince, the king's son, the heir to the throne. Now, if you get an invitation from the king of England to come to the wedding feast of his son. You are an important person. More important than me. <laughs> More important than anybody in this church, probably, at least to them. You are a, a high-ranking dignitary. So the invitation went out to the best of society, and they said, well, we're busy. We can't. Married a wife, and can't. And, 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 and another said, I just bought land, and I got this field to plow. I can't. So he sends out his servants again to those same people. And he said, man, I killed the fatted calf. And did I mention, I've got ice cream and cake. I've got Baskin Robbins ice cream cake. You got to come to my wedding feast. But they made fun of those servants and beat them and murdered them. And then in verse 7 of Matthew 22, Scripture says this. And when the king heard, he was angry. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you will find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both good and bad. And the wedding was furnished with guests. From one commentary that I read about the highways and hedges, Matthew uses the word highways, Luke uses highways and hedges, This is from one commentary I read, and I quote, Jesus told them to go into the highways and hedges to get people into the wedding feast. Literally, that means the exit or going out of the paths or roads. It means the square or principal street into which a number of smaller streets enter, a place there of confluence where many people would be seen and people of all descriptions. By this is representing the offering of the gospel to the Gentiles. They were commonly regarded among the Jews as living in the highways and hedges and cast out and despised. Literally, Jesus said, the wedding feast invitation went out to the miserable vagabonds, the poor, the decrepit, and those that were hated by the Jews because those who should have received it chose not to. Now, let me, let me just say this. To really drive this home, one day, if you're a man here who has a daughter, that daughter is going to turn 18. And she's, or maybe not eight, she probably is not going to be 18 when she gets married. Every dad's like, no, that's not that. Well, at some point, she's going to be old enough to date. When she's 45 years old, you're going to let her date, right? <laughs> so she'll get married sometime before she's 50. 
And just what if you furnished a banquet table, you know, after, after the wedding? 500 people. And, and you spent thousands of dollars making sure nice food was catered in. You hired somebody to decorate and to make sure everything was just so. And it was at, at an fancy elite occasion. And you show up with your daughter and her new husband and you walk in and nobody has showed up. But you've got a place for 500 people. Now imagine how angry you are. So you send out invitations. And, and why aren't you here? You immediately get your phone out and start texting. Where are you? you know, I've got 500 people here. You, know, you send a mass group text, 500 people. <laughs> Everybody loves group texts. A 500 people group text. Where are you? And everybody starts responding. I'm busy. Or, I've, I've got to work today. I've got this. I've got that. And you get angry. And so you, so you go and you hire somebody to get the church van and to go downtown and get as many homeless people as you can. And you fill it up with homeless people and some are drug addicts and some are probably not even mentally halfway there because they've done taking their last drug trip. They're high on something. Some are drunk. Some are, you know, m most of them are probably not going to smell good because they haven't had a place to take a shower in a long time. And so you go there and there's like 40. And so now you got 460 more. So the van goes back and back and back and back until there's 500 people. And you look out there and now you've got 500 people. This is what God did for salvation. Those that, that should have received it did not, but there was a remnant in that first century among the Jews. Paul said there was a remnant. And so because by and large, that first generation did not respond to the gospel. In one place, Paul said, no more. From henceforth, I go to the Gentiles. And the gospel door began to be opened to the Gentiles. And here we are today. Amen. I thank God that the gospel went out to the Gentiles also. Now, I'm, I'm saying that to point out the obvious, is that before Christ, the scripture doesn't segregate groups of people. It doesn't say, well, there was Gentiles that were good, and then there was Gentiles over here, and they were bad. The Bible calls us all barbarians and heathens without Christ. So where were any of us had it not been for the grace of God that washed us, and the grace of God that saved us, and the spirit that bought us, and his blood that cleansed us? If you're too big or too important or too righteous to be their friend, then you are much too small to win them to Christ. Because those are the ones, as I've said, Jesus went to the cross for. Loving people does not require the absence of boundaries. Okay? Loving people does not require the absence of boundaries. And again, I'm not criticizing here. I'm just trying to help. There are some people who have never won anybody to Christ in their whole life and never discipled anybody. And the reason is that you don't even know anybody that's not saved. And if you do, you're probably not their friend. That's how you win people to Christ. You be their friend. You don't win them to Christ only by not. Now, I know people have been won by knocking doors and giving tracts. That's happened. By and large, that's not mostly how people are won. People are won to God when they're going through a crisis and, and suddenly they, you know, they reach out. Who do they reach out to? 
their inner circle of friends. What do I do? I'm going through this. They need somebody to talk to. If you're there, if you're among their inner circle of friends, they're going to reach out to you. And that's a prime opportunity to say, I know a God that can help you through this. He helped me through this and, and he helped me through something. Let me tell you my testimony. That's called witnessing. That's called being an overcomer by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Amen. That's how you win people to Jesus Christ is you become their friend. You got to learn to be a fisher of men and women. Being a fisherman was and still is a dirty job. I remember as a kid, you may not see me as a fisherman, but I grew up in a little town that's sandwiched between the Mississippi River and the bluffs. We had miles and miles of bluffs, and my summers were spent as a kid swimming in the Mississippi River. I cannot, that was our swimming pool, by the way. I cannot tell you how many ear infections I had. And swimming in that river. And the dock was our diving board. There was an old wooden dock that floated in the water that was just tied, tied to land. And that was, our, that, was our, uh, that was our swimming pool and our diving board. We'd swim across the river. We would go mushrooming. And, and we'd fry those little things up, and they taste like French fries. Dip them in ketchup. They're good. And, uh, but has anybody here ever set out a trout line? I know what a trout line is. Now, when I say fishing, I'm not thinking sitting in a comfortable chair where there's no mosquitoes and casting your rod into the water and taking you a nice little nap. That was not the first century mindset of fishing. Now, I don't think they had trout lines in the first century. I think they had nets that they would cast out into the river or the sea. And these nets had weights around all around the edges. And so that would cause the net to sink and it would catch the fish. Then they would pull, up, pull it out by a rope and what they caught is what they caught. <clears throat> so that's how they would catch fish. But when I was a kid, many of my summers and weekends were spent setting out trout lines. And this is how we did it. We'd get up about four o'clock in the morning. Dad would wake me up, me and my brother Tom. Sometimes Tony would come with us. First thing we do is we go seining. Anybody know what seining is? It's, yeah, it's where you, you, you get a net and a, and a muddy pond. <laughs> and you roll your pant legs up as high as you can roll them because you're getting ready to sink down into the mud in that pond. And you drag that net across the bottom of the pond or lake or whatever body of water you found. And when you lift it up, there's crawdads, crawfish. And that's what, you leave, that's what we used as live bait. Either that or sometimes we would have bluegill or other forms of bait, but crawfish was kind of our, our choice. Then we, we'd get back about 5.30 in the morning and we would take those crawdads and we would bait them on these trout lines. <clears throat> Eight or ten trout lines. And we would go out into the river. By now it's 6.30, 7 o'clock and you're already tired. You already feel like you've had a day's work. You're, you're, you're already muddy. You're wet. You're not going to change clothes because you're just going to get wet again in the river. And, and you go out on the river, and first thing we do is we would raise in the trout lines from the night before that we set out. Eight or ten trout lines. One person pulls the line in, another person has a net. I mean, if you've done this before, you know the drill. And by the way, let me just pause and say this. People are thin-skinned because they've never been fishing with my dad. <laughs> That's the fact, because, you know, you, didn't, you made a mistake once. <laughs> you didn't make it again. Uh, uh, because that was just how he was. 
But, you know, so we, we, would, we, we would pull in those fish, then we'd set out the new ones. By now it's 8, 8.30. We'd come in. Sometimes we would take those fish and we would sell them to the fish market. At other times we would have to clean them. Now, cleaning 40 pounds of catfish is a dirty job. My dad had, had this house that he built way out in the woods, at, at the, right at the edge of town. And, uh, and it, was, it was surrounded by woods, but the basement was, had this wooden, long wooden table and a concrete floor right in the middle of the, of the base. I can still see it in my mind, was a drain. And there was this table that was set right by this drain, and he would take that fish, he would skin it, cut its head off, and then gut it, and then, and then take, a, take a hose, and he would wash all the blood and the guts off, and the, the blood would go into the drain, and the rest he would throw out in the yard. And we did that, and by now it's 11.30 or 12 o'clock, you've been up since 4 o'clock, you're dead, you're stinky, you're muddy, you don't smell good, you've been mosquito-bitten, you've got bitten by other bugs, I don't even know how many there are out there in the Mississippi River, especially if it rained, we ran anyway. That was fishing. That was fishing when I, the way I grew up. Now, I don't know what your experience is with fishing. It might be something similar to that. But it was all hands on deck when we were kids. And I want to tell you, you have to learn to be a fisher of men. And it is not always a clean job. Sticking with people who need to be discipled is not for the faint of heart. Because people will walk all over your boundaries. Years ago, whenever, whenever I was a, a young minister at New Life Center, Pastor Jerry Jones told the story about this woman who, who called him up at 1 o'clock in the morning, he said, and, and said, guess what, Pastor Jones? He was pastor in Louisiana at that time. He was like, what? He's, you know, he's tired. He's late. He, she, she, she actually said, I balanced my checkbook. He's like, click. <laughs> And I thought as a young minister, I'll never have a story to beat that. Guess what? I do. <laughs> Wasn't too long ago. I got a call about two o'clock in the morning. And why do they always ask you, did I wake you up? No, I'm just out looking for my bat signal in Gotham City. Because I'm Batman. Now, if you, need, if you need us at 2.30 in the morning, we will be there for you. But don't call us to tell us you balanced your checkbook. But this, this gentleman, God love him, he actually asked if I would go to McDonald's and get him a sausage biscuit. I am literally not joking you right now. Now, how, how do you kindly say no to that at 2 o'clock in the morning when you, all your mental faculties are probably not alive? Because two in the morning, you know, you, they, they woke you up. Now, you got to be pretty hungry to call somebody at two o'clock in the morning and ask them for a sausage biscuit. But it goes to this. People whom you're discipling will walk over your boundaries. Now, again, I'm not saying don't have them. I'm not saying have them. I'm just saying it's going to happen when you're discipling people. If somebody hasn't called you up at two o'clock in the morning to ask you for a sausage biscuit or tell you they balance your checkbook, then you're probably not knee-deep in fish guts cleaning the fish. You're not close enough to people so that they, they're comfortable telling you that and asking you that. And again, I'm not criticizing. I'm just trying to help here tonight. 
Jesus, in more than one occasion, tried getting away from the crowd, but the crowd came to him anyway in the desert place. He was on vacation, and they couldn't leave him alone. It was just this week where I heard a story of this, this particular minister, and he's not apostolic, so I'll just preface that by telling you that, but... This particular minister had this homosexual boy who came, uh, who came, to, came to church to hear him. And, and he said, of all the times to come and, and hear, I was preaching on biblical sexuality and biblical gender. And, you know, he made them male and female. And, and he was like, you know, I, I, I knew his story a little bit, but, but afterwards, I just, I wasn't sure. And he made a beeline for me, straight through. And he, he, he thought to himself, oh, well, here it comes. I'm going to get it. And this young man came up to him and he said, I just want you to know something. I disagree with everything you said. And this minister said, okay, I understand. He was very gracious about it. I understand, but we teach from the Bible here and this is what we teach and preach. And he said, I know that. He said, and even though I disagree with everything, I have never, ever been in a place where I have felt so much love. And even though he disagreed with the message, he came back the next week and the next and the next until that young man was at an altar repenting of his sins and God changed his life. We must create a culture where sinners can hear the word of God, but we love them unconditionally like Jesus loved. Because now I talked about cleaning fish, but you understand we can't clean any, up anybody. I can't make a decision for anybody. I can't make that person, uh, you, know, you know, love God. I can't make them repent. But you know what? I can live my life in such a way that it can salt their appetite for Jesus Christ. I can live my life in such a way where they can say, man, I want the joy that he's got. I don't know what kind of strength he has walking through that trial, always smiling, always a praise on his lips, always kind to everybody, always walking in love. But I can tell you this, they will come to that kind of an attitude it will draw them in it's the old adage yeah you can lease a horse you, you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink but they say you can put salt in his water or you can, you can put salt give him a, a salt block to drink and then he'll be thirsty we are salt in this earth we are that element that should make people want what we have and if you walk into work every day looking like your best friend just died and you just kicked your dog on the way out of the house and you had an argument with your spouse on the way there and you, and, and you walk down and your knuckles are dragging on the ground and you, you know you need the victory. No, we need to get to victory before we get to work so that we can be a light and a witness. <laughs> joy wins people. The joy of the Lord. The only people critical of new people and sinners are those who are not actively discipling anyone. Amen? The only people, I can tell you that. I've been preaching since I was 19. I'm 51 now, so that's over 30 years. I can tell you this. That is absolutely the truth. 
The only people that will ever be critical of new people and sinners are those who are not actively discipling anybody at all, who are not discipling anybody. And so those people, whenever people walk into our church, whether it's the homosexual community, it's been prophesied before that God is going to send them our way, I say let them come. We're going to preach the truth to them, and we're going to love them like Jesus loved, and we're going to do our best to try and win them to God. And they may or may not repent of their sins and come to the Lord, but they will know that this is a church that loves them. Brother Cornwell, who pastors in Wichita, Kansas, told a story many years ago. He was like, you know, you know, Brother Cornwell went into to a to, to Wichita, and he was was and still is the, probably one of the greatest owners you'll ever hear or or rub shoulders with. He still pastors in Wichita, Kansas. At least I, last time I heard, he still was pastoring there. And he said it was, you know, I was teaching Bible studies. He won over 100 people one week, one, one year. 109 people is what he says. It's the most he's won. Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. And yet there were friends that were accusing him of, 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 of compromising his growth and compromising his, his holiness stuff because, well, nobody can grow like that. And I'll tell you what, when you get a hold of what I'm talking about today and you really get a hunger for discipling people and you start pursuing people and start loving them like Jesus, though, there is no telling what God can do through you. And you are most vulnerable to being offended when you're doing nothing or very little for the kingdom of God. Because when you're not doing anything for the kingdom, you're focused on you instead of the harvest. So you ask, how do I get somebody to disciple? It's real simple. Look around. Who has God placed in the proximity of your life? And if there's nobody, start praying for God to pray, to put somebody in your place, across your path. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 4. Say not ye there yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look into the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Liberty in Kansas City uh, metropolitan era has been white to harvest. And God is looking for laborers in his field in this hour who will not just come to church and sing, send it on down, send it on down. I know what we mean by that. But what we need to pray is, Lord, send me out there. Lord, make me a tool in your harvest. Not God send somebody else. But I want to go. I want to be the one. I want to be the one to teach that Bible study. I want to be the one. I love that person to Jesus Christ. I don't want us to ever view church as a place to get fed. People just bellying up to the table. Thank God for the praise team. And thank God, you know, even today, they brought it today. Didn't they? The praise team did amazing. Ushered us right into the presence of God. But I don't ever want us to view the church as a place to come and just get fed and get blessed. Jesus said, get your eyes off the table and get it on the field. Look at that verse again. Don't say, there are yet four months and then come as a harvest. Behold, I say, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. Look at who God has placed in your proximity. Those are the people that we should be reaching. The church exists so that people can come and be equipped to do the work of the ministry outside the walls of the four church, outside the four walls of the church. That's why we exist. 
That's why we meet, to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, not just in the confines of these four walls, but outside. That's where the ministry happens. That's where the people are. That's where the harvest is. And lastly, I'm almost done. Just a few more minutes. I know that America is in trouble right now. And frankly, not just America, but the world, both spiritually and economically. I believe we are headed down a very bad path. Now, I hope I'm wrong. And there have been plenty of prophets of doom and gloom. And I know that judgment is also very inevitable on this world. There will be a book of Revelation. Some very big names and politicians are now starting to talk about the Great Reset and the New World Order and how it's just around the corner. Inflation is at an all-time high, and some economists feel like we're already in a recession. Again, I don't know if one is headed our way or not. I'm just telling you there are many who feel that it's coming or we are already in one. The world is reeling on the edge of collapse, and America is in trouble both spiritually and politically in the midst of now what we know is Pride Month. And you may have read about this on the news, the second annual SatanCon was held in Boston recently in the month of May, where this one particular priestess was filmed ripping pages publicly out of the Bible, and where converts and members were encouraged to get unbaptized, to be free from the tenets of the Christian faith and what they view as bondage. Now, interesting fact, Satanists actually don't even believe in Satan. <laughs> it's just a representation, they say, of, of, of what they believe, of the whole question authority, question everything. Now, again, I'm not bashing any group of people. I'm just telling you where we are at as a nation. This is happening right here in our backyard. And, and, and I know judgment is coming on the world. There's going to be a book of Revelation. There's plenty of prophets out there that are, that are prophesying doom and gloom. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm way off base. But I'll just tell you, I personally do not believe that God is getting ready to judge the earth just yet. I believe that he wants to first pour out his spirit. I believe that where sin abounded, then grace will much more abound. I believe that the darker the night, the brighter the light. I believe that the darker and and, and, and the more wickedly sinful this world gets, presents the church with, with, an amazing, uh, with an amazing opportunity to go out with a Bible study chart and a home Bible study and teach somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ and love them to the kingdom of God. Because remember Jonah, the prophet who was sent to a people he hated. The Ninevites, capital of Assyria, God said, go tell them I'm going to destroy them in 40 days. And Jonah didn't even bother to make an altar call. He just went to the corner and he stood up on his little stool and said, 40 days and you're all going to die. He went to the next corner, did the same thing, 40 days and you're all going to die. But as he was preaching that, even though he didn't even make an altar call, that message got in the hearts of 40,000 people. And the king said, oh man, we believe what this old prophet of God is saying. And we're going to go and we're going we're gonna to fast from the, from the king all the way down to the beasts fasted for days. And God cheer, and, and, and caused that, 
that message to be at least postponed until many hundreds of years later. So remember Jonah, the angry prophet. He could weep over a gourd, but not weep over an entire city going to hell. What are we weeping over today? Stock markets that potentially have collapsed, 401ks that we've lost money in. Maybe it wasn't your guy or your gal that got into the office. All the things that we weep over. And when you read that book of Revelation, he said they wept over this and they wept over that. And then the very, you know, they listed all of these things. And the last thing that they wept over were the souls of men. What are we weeping over in this hour? Today, I believe God has sent me here for no other reason to ask you that message right now. That before we start banning anybody, before we start, you know, crossing the on the other side of the street. We better find a prayer room and make sure that we've shed some tears for their souls and interceded for them for the kingdom of God and said, God, make me a light and a witness, God, so that I can maybe teach them a Bible study and disciple them. In, con- in conclusion, musicians come. I know that this message may not be for everybody. Because love, Paul said, is the bond of perfectness. Now, he said that. I'm not going to say the verse. I know our Bible quizzers. Where's our quizzers at? That's in your material. You know where it's at, Jared? (laughs) No? Okay. It's okay. I don't either. (laughs) Where's that, Zach? Colossians 3.14. Bible quizzing. Amen. Colossians 3.14, love is the bond of perfectness. That means what heaven looks for in somebody that is spiritually mature is perfect love. Now, that passage I read from Matthew 5, where he said, be therefore, or where he said, love your enemies, I didn't read it, but that last part of Matthew chapter 5 ends with Jesus saying this, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, how can we be perfect? In another verse, you can cross-reference that with 1 John, where he said, He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Love, the degree to which you can love people, is directly equivalent to your degree of spiritual maturity. I can't love people like me. Well, you need to grow in the love of God. Because you know what? You're probably right. In our natural humanness, we can't love people that are not like us. We don't want to love people who are racists and, 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 and people who are maybe members of the LGBTQ community or, you know, uh, you know, who knows? We may not want to love people like that. But when you get a hold of God at an altar and when you realize like Paul did when he said, man, I am a debtor to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. I am a debtor to the grace of God that bought me. You can have all the rules right, but we're only as mature spiritually as we are, as we have the ability to love like Jesus loved. Let's stand. God wants to partner with refuge for a mighty harvest. That's a prophetic word. God wants to partner with refuge for a mighty harvest. But they're not going to look like us Many of them are not going to vote like us. 
and they're not going to act like us or dress like us. They're going to need to be discipled and loved. And we must not have the spirit of Jonah who wept over a gourd instead of the souls of men. And when I was a kid, we had Thanksgiving each year. Every year we would gather together at my mother's house. And, you know, it, it was, there was probably 20, 30 of us there. And, and even as I grew up, up until just, just a few years ago, we all gathered together for Thanksgiving there. And for various reasons, we don't really meet much anymore together like that. But inevitably, like there was always somebody that was missing. We would, we would look around and it would be, oh, where's my brother Tony at? Oh, well, he had to work today. Or, oh, he, he went away with, to this or that. He's on a hunting trip. Or where's Aunt Sue and Uncle Joe? Well, she was sick. We can't be there. So we would, you know, before we would belly up to the table or while we got at the table, there was always one or two chairs that were missing that were filled last year. And we would look around and, and, and I would always make a mention, no, I need to call them. And I need to text, I need to follow up with them because I need to make sure they're okay. Let them know. They, I hope they have a good Thanksgiving. We knew who was missing at our table. And I'm asking you this today, Refuge Church. Who has God placed at your table that is missing right now? When you look around at the people that you've helped and you've discipled and, 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 and you are, or the people that you're trying to bring to the Lord, who's missing here in this sanctuary right now? Who's missing at your table? Because when you realize that God, has, that God wants to empower you to reach lost people, and when you start praying for God every day, get up in the morning, before you walk out of your door, pray, Lord, use me today. Make me a tool in your harvest. Put somebody in my path. You know what? You may give somebody a word. That word may not even be taking root until 20 years later. But that's what God wants you to do in that moment. There's no telling what God will do. So who's missing at your table today? Let's lift our hands to the Lord right now. Thank you, Jesus. Right now, mighty God, put your burden on our hearts. I want you just to, be, just to begin to pray. Lord, put your burden on my heart for people, God. Help me to look past what they wear, what they look like, or who they vote for. Help me to look past of all that, God. Help me to just put all that away. Give me a burden for lost people, Lord, today. This is where a missionary spirit begins. This is where ministry begins. Ministry doesn't begin in the pulpit. It begins with you weeping over lost people, with winning people, with planting seeds in your, in your school, at your workplace, wherever it's at. God wants to use you for His harvest. Some have already came. Why don't you come right now? Just begin to pray, Lord of the harvest, send me, God. Place a burden in my heart, Lord. Place a burden in my souls, God. Help me to be that good Samaritan, not like that priest. I want to reach somebody today.